Hey everyone! Welcome to Zeitgeist. This is a show where we talk about movies and TV sometimes, and just generally what's going on in the Zeitgeist. I'm Jordan, and this is... Yeah, you go ahead, say your name. I'm Neef. Hi. I mean... If you guys have listened to the other episodes, then I've been a regular feature of this show. If not, you know, co-person of this show. Co-person? Co-person. That's that's a word. Yeah. We're both we're both the yeah. Avengers of this yeah. program, aren't we? We're the main we're the main dudes. <laughs> yeah, so that was a bad um interim into yeah. what we're talking about today, which is the blockbuster. As we're going to towards the end of the year here. There's a couple of things that we still have to touch on, which is the stuff that everybody's been watching. So we are going to be hitting on last month's big tent pole, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, and Top Gun Maverick. And Niv, we haven't actually discussed which we want to talk about first, so I'll take your lead there. But before we do that, what have you been into? What have you been watching lately? Honestly, I have gone back to my roots <laughs> and um, start rewatching. Well, not rewatching, but watching anime again. Because uh, Jordan knows this, but my good audience doesn't. I actually grew up in Thailand. And when I grew up in Thailand, I wasn't introduced to regular cartoons as a child. Like we had Cartoon Network, but it wasn't nearly as fascinating as Aniplex, which had like anime. And the reason as a child, I was really drawn to like anime is because it had serious storytelling as opposed to what I thought was kiddish American storytelling. Because it talked about like, real and really gritty themes which is what attracted me to it I, ju- I guess i just really wanted to become an adult as fast as i humanly could i think a lot of kids went through that i kind of did too but i also had my moment yeah. watching lizzie mcguire and even stevens and all the disney stuff which is uh interesting because we'll talk about how the the disney life sort of continues to imbue our more like adult sensibilities right because these two franchises are very much still in that same tradition and all of that i've been watching a lot of hbo actually um i'm catching up on uh industry have you seen industry Dan? no but i've heard only good, good things show. about it yeah. yeah it's 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 okay um it's it's not gonna make my um my tops but it's it's really pretty solid um mm-hmm. really good performances a touch soapy for my taste but still pretty good and of course the white lotus which you know I love. The finale was just last Sunday, which is probably a week from whenever this gets published. And uh, yeah, so it's a, it's been really kind of a good entertainment time frame. Have you seen any movies other than, of course, Maverick this month? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't remember. Everything has been kind of... Hitting on the anime, dude. Hitting on the important stuff. It's been sort of like a fever dream where I think we've talked about this too. When I did my master's, my homework was to watch like high art television shows and movies um, so I could write about them and essays and all of that stuff and al- analyze them. This podcast has brought me back to that feeling. So I've done the same thing that I did back in my master's when I've been feeling like burned out from high art 
which is either watch anime that I know that is not the focus of our podcast or watch reality TV. I watched like Too Hot to Handle just a few days ago and it is so bad but so good at the same time that you know it, it just it just gets me by. It just gets me by. That's hilarious. Speaking of you getting on the academe train watching I remember when you watched Battleship Patinkin which I think I saw a couple minutes of. How did you did you um, check out the BFI um, sight and sound list that dropped last month here or this month I think? No I did not. I didn't even hear about oh, it. Oh man. Well this is interesting. So the sight and sound poll is one of the things that comes out every 10 years and is kind of a big deal for certain corners of the movie buff world. The interesting thing this year is that almost half of the BFI list or the sight and sound list I, it's on BFI's website. I don't know if there's these two are correlated. About half of them are all on the Criterion collection which kind of poses the question of like what do we consider like canon right? Obviously no Marvel movies on this list. The top one though is interesting. Are you familiar with the um, anti-blockbuster Jean Dielman? Yes but only vaguely. You're familiar with what it probably consists of right? Which is yeah. her cleaning her kitchen for three hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah I am familiar with that. So Jean Dielman racked up to number one on this list. Topping Vertigo, which was last cycle's number one, and Citizen Kane, which is the uh, one that has been on this sight and sound poll list for millennia, probably prior to that. So kind of a weird jump. Yeah. Yeah, I invite you to check it out and to all our listeners. It's a good touch point. I definitely have a lot of my own personal quandaries, but The Searchers is at number 15, and I'm hoping to see that this month here in LA because they're doing a showing in 70 millimeter. So that'll be a good way to, to get on the the John Ford train. Interesting uh, John Ford cameo in the new Steven Spielberg movie, Niv. We might want to plunder that in a future episode because um, a certain very famous actor plays John Ford in the final moments of Spielberg's new movie, The Fablemans. I'm sure we will when we do like our Oscar roundup. We aren't even touching the Oscars today because we're doing uh, blockbusters. Which one do you want to start with? Do you want to start with Maverick or do you want to start with Panther? Let's start with Maverick only because I feel like it came earlier. Exactly. Yeah. So Maverick. Kind of a wild one, right? So Maverick was slated for like two years ago. It kept getting delayed over the pandemic. They were like, we need to really make a splash with this. And so they waited. They waited and waited and waited. And while a lot of times in the the blockbuster world as of late that has proven to be not the best choice. Top Gun Maverick absolutely pummeled the box office when it came out. It was like unavoidable, which is why we're talking about it, I think, right? We both agreed that even if we're not huge gung-ho America, we want to watch planes for two hours kind of dudes, that this is like a notable piece of culture. Last time we talked about deep water and the erotic thriller genre, this brought its own kind of like, what was it, 80s genre, you know, of like that action and riding into the danger zone. Kenny Loggins song. It's like bringing back a certain time capsule, <laughs> but yet it's still somehow so successful and so enticing because of that nostalgia, but also because it's it does something that is different in a lot of ways. Because from my understanding and through the research I've done, like the pilot sort of fighter pilot sequences were all real. Like they were actually in planes. So it was very practical and it lended itself into its like action sequences 
experiences really well because everything felt really real and really intimate and something that would be harder to translate and harder to make sort of enticing if it was just digital effects the entire way yeah. through. I can't really speak to how real and what is practical versus what was CG. I can't really speak to, but I do know that this was kind of a co-production between Cruz and Macquarie, who kind of have garnered a reputation on the other major franchise that um, Cruz is doing, which is uh, the new Mission Impossible. New one's coming out next year. But so that was kind of like what Cruz built his reputation on in these later uh, instances of the Mission Impossible series. So it makes sense that they kind of went that direction on Obviously, he's not jumping out of the fighter plane, which is what he would have done in that series. But yeah, he still is very much Tom Cruise in this movie. Um, obviously, the opening is like this really kind of blood pumping sequences. To me, I mean, I feel like the movie is really, really, really tight on the front end, really, really, really tight on the back end. And then there's also the middle of the movie. And that's kind of its own separate ordeal. I mean, for me, the start of the movie is actually its weakest part in a lot of ways. You think? Yeah, because I'm just kind of like, all right, Tom Cruise is being Tom Cruise. You know, he's trying to save these people's job, even though their job isn't that important. He makes it sound like life and death, which makes it sound so disingenuous because the worst thing that could happen to those soldiers isn't that they're just going to lose their job. It's just that they're going to be placed in a different job in the army or the Navy. Right, they're just getting reassigned. It's not like they're ending the army over night yeah exactly so it just them being so melodramatic about trying to save this program for no good reason other than like oh yeah computers are replacing fighter pilots i mean yeah but also no as the the rest of the movie showcases yeah so that's kind of One of the things that I think does work for me in the movie, um, which is what is the spirit of this movie and what does it tap into in sort of our cultural moment, which is to me that people are feeling like they are less important, less essential. We're being replaced by AI. We're being replaced by computers. You know, the um, big the big movie of 2020 was Nomadland. Nomadland, that's kind of the conceit is like this mining town is getting shut down because these people aren't needed anymore. Coal isn't needed anymore. And so all of this is being diverted. And what happens to the the people who are left in its wake? Um, And I thought that they did that very well. I mean, this really taps into sort of the silent majority middle America type of people who feel much, much stronger than I think you and I that they need to stick to what was good back in the 80s back prior to the 80s, which is people, people doing these jobs. Now, can drones do these things better? Probably, especially considering that in this sequence, Maverick is risking his life to do these things, to be able to make this threshold that they've arbitrarily set in order to essentially screw these guys over. They are proven wrong by Tom Cruise acting like a maniac and getting in a plane and saying, I'm just going to go to Mach 10. But it's, it's the feeling of it that I think really takes over at that moment is 
is the feeling that we are people and we can do these certain things and we have these ambitions that a computer will never have and that the system can never really replace. And that generally is the ethos for the rest of the movie is that sure, like could a drone probably do this drop perfectly? Sure, probably. And if they trained drones to do that in the movie, it would be a much less exciting movie. And so they have people do this insane rigmarole and we watch again and again how this is going to be set up. It sort of feels almost like a heist movie in that way where it's like, this is sort of our marker point. This is one impossible thing. This is another impossible thing. And this is a third impossible thing. And they're like, how are we going to do it? And of course, we get up right to the finish line and it's like, oh, I don't know. And it pulls through. That's not really a surprise. But it's interesting what happens in the interim of that. And that to me was the exciting part of it. And to me, that's also where it stops. I mean, there is like a famous YouTube channel, I think called like Pitch Meetings that lampoons sort of the writing processes of these kinds of movies. (laughs) I'll link it. It's cool. And, you know, like the premise is, again, the writer talking to the producer. And when the writer said the same thing as you, you know, like they're up against possible odds. Okay, I will. And this freaking target's at the end of this big canyon and to hit it, they gotta hit this super precise exhaust port. Oh, they gotta do a Star Wars. No, it's not a Star Wars, sir. It's just some pilots flying through tight spaces trying to blow up an evil base by hitting a very precise target in an exhaust port. That's a Star Wars. No, it's not. It's just this movie where one of the best pilots is this kid that Mav is gonna mentor and he's actually the son of someone he used to fight with back in the day. This is a Star Wars. (laughs) That's what I mean. You were like, you were like, this is a heist movie. This is a heist movie. And to this day, all I can hear is you're doing the Star Wars because that's that's the whole climax of that movie. It's the same climax. Almost more than 40 years ago. What Top Gun does really, really well is it draws on nostalgia from sort of multiple directions. And as you said, it's also able to connect to something that a lot of people in America are feeling right now, that they're being replaced, that they are a silent majority of people that is being sort of ignored. And in that sense, it also is a very American film. We talked about genre just now and how sort of Top Gun represents that action 80s genre. But part of that genre was sort of how American patriotism and sort of like American chest pumping was a feature of that genre and how those films essentially ushered to the rest of the world how cool and amazing and heroic America is. And for the last sort of 30 years, that has been slowly disappearing due to various sort of things. I think it's also just the zeitgeist general like growing dislike for action but I think it's also been replaced by the superhero genre because it's also a very heroic sort of genre but it's not necessarily connected to how patriotic those movies are well and it disassociates from the U.S. military specifically. Absolutely. Whereas a war movie has a tendency to be, and largely I think because of Spielberg, more introverted and a little bit more interested in critiquing the nature of war. And I think that's what a lot of Americans thrive for right now, especially post-Trump. Part of his America First brought back this American chest pumping to a really, I think, a negative sort 
sort of purview. But at the same time, I, I think that that's what it is appealing to Americans right now. It's also, especially after coronavirus, where Americans are like, well, we need to be united. We are so divided right now. We got to be united, understand and unify over what America is. And I feel like this movie in particular is one of the few unifying things right now because both camps of people came out to watch it. Historically, the U.S. military and every military of a particular country in general does a job of unification. World War II showed the way in which our culture unifies over an enemy. And it's not something that we've been able to replicate because I think we're more aware of the fact that a common enemy isn't necessarily the most ethical way to unite. And yet we haven't found something more apt. Can we talk about the enemy of this film for a second? I would love to. So the conceit of the movie um, originally was that they are fighting against the Soviets, right? Do you remember what the original... Did you, Have you seen the original Top Gun and when did you watch it? I watched it when I was like eight years old. So I have no memory of it other than Tom Cruise being Tom Cruise and Meg Ryan. And I know Meg Ryan actually plays a really small role in that film. Yeah, Meg Ryan's like in for a very good scene, but a pretty quick scene yeah but yeah that's that's all i know of the original top gun it, it appeared on my netflix actually when i was still in chicago and i, and I knew we were going to do this podcast and i told myself should i watch it should i watch it just to prepare and i was like nah it's fine <laughs> It's fine. I don't need to watch it. I should go completely blind into Maverick because I'm pretty sure it will be the same sort of feeling regardless. Oh, and no, you absolutely were right on that. But of course, it is still playing out on a um, on a field. The thing is, is that I'm unclear who was the enemy in the first Top Gun movie. Thing about uh, Top Gun, the original, is that despite the fact that Top Gun Maverick is not, I think, necessarily a fantastic film, it's definitely a major step up from the first movie because the first movie is one of those sort of mid 80s vibes action movies which is a little bit more concerned with like just the idea of teamwork and how war is a fun time more than anything else like the police academy movies are like how the police is just sort of like a fun little summer camp that you go to that kind of thing so i i'm still unclear what the enemy of top gun is much less the top gun Maverick, which I was paying very close attention and absolutely no idea. I mean, it's someone who we share a border with, which is clear because there's the us side and there's the them side. And the big part of the movie is, and I guess we're getting into spoilers here as much as you can spoil this movie. Near the end, they go kind of into enemy territory and they have to dive down this cliff and then they have to go up. And it's sort of like they get lost. One of them gets lost in this terrain. I'm doing a pretty good job of not giving everything away here. But we don't know where this is. My guess is that it's Russia. The only place they could go. It's also snow. Right. It's sort of the unifying thing. And it is a, the only enemy that we share a um, border with, even though we're not really enemies with. Yeah. I think it's sort of implied that this is the USSR kind of, though, right? Like, it seems like we're still fighting communism like it's the 80s, which is kind of the weird fantasy that Maverick lives in, which is that we still are living in Reagan's America. But also, like, there were no, at least in Maverick, there were no defining features for the enemy. I mean, they looked like stormtroopers <laughs> against Star Wars 
<laughs> because they were all in black. They had black helmets. Um, even their fighter pilots were black. So they looked like TIE fighters or <laughs> they created the idea of TIE fighters. And it just felt like it was, a you know, you have a white canvas for how plain something is. This felt just like a black canvas because everything was just black and evil and mean. You know, that was what they were fighting. They just color coded the enemy. Yeah, exactly. Every They were like, these are bad guys. <laughs> and that's it. Which is, I think, effective, if not painting with a fairly wide brush. I mean, but I get it. You know, this is how you do this kind of movie nowadays in order not to create sort of this thing where you're like, okay, this country is bad. You know, you're, you're trying to be more aware of these sort of things. You can't make those judgments anymore unless it's like a terrorist organization, whether it's real or fake. Because, you know, like Ukraine, unfortunately, and Syria notwithstanding, wars are like large scale wars are essentially over. You know, you don't see like major, major countries like the US or England or Russia or China fighting openly, you know, as they did back in World War Two and World War One. So there isn't as much of a global sort of us versus them when it comes to those like the American superpower and the emerging superpowers of the rest of this world. So and also the United States generally doesn't have enemy enemies other than rivals, like its largest rivals are China and Russia. And I think that's what's interesting. You know, it's, again, drawing back from this 80s sort of Cold War era that you mentioned, which was also near the end of the Cold War, it's it's worth mentioning. And it's drawing from that. But also, it's just being like, yeah, we don't have necessarily an external enemy we can discuss and explore, because the US doesn't really have an external enemy anymore. But what we do have is an enemy within ourselves, which again, is like that whole thing of that entire conflict of, you know, Americans feeling like they're being replaced, and there is no unification and stuff like that, which is a far more interesting conflict to explore. Because again, as you said, the army and the military in the US is something that's very patriotic at, at its best and unifying at its best. And at its worst, it's something that is heavily criticized or heavily explored, like in other movies, like you mentioned, specifically like Spielberg's movies. I think they lean more generally into the feel good and a little bit less into the nature of technology, which I would have liked to see a little bit more. I think that a good example of an 80s property, actually a 90s property that does that really well is the um, Twin Peaks revival, which was really critically acclaimed when it came out. And they do a really good job of sort of taking on technology as an aspect of our world that has both corrupted and assisted us and sort of diagnoses the ways in which that is a good and bad thing and specifically how some of these characters handle it, which is, I think, really beautiful. In this movie, it doesn't seem like it's terribly interested in going beyond surface level, which is a bug and a feature, but it means that it's more concerned with these characters and their relationships with each other, which means that it's a lot of text messages with Maverick and Iceman. It's a lot of him and Jennifer Connelly, which we didn't see in the previous film, but still kind of feels true to, I think that's one of the things they heel turn really, really well, actually, is the way in which these characters all live in the shared universe. You know, Jennifer Connelly feels like she should have been on the perimeter of the previous movie. We just never saw her. And um, what's his name? Goose? Goose himself is 
in the first movie just implicated i mean you know he's essentially been recreated as miles teller um through his son you know and um as you said jennifer connelly feels very right in this film because she herself is an 80s you know star so like they were very smart about like pulling her and just transplanting her because essentially they live in a very closed bubble which is this island where this base is and i'm also really happy they brought val kilmer back i mean we both talked about this like I think a year ago that he just went off the radar because of his cancer situation that he got out of, but he can't speak. So I'm really, really happy that they managed to put him in this film because I know like I researched this a little bit and he he actively campaigned to be put in this film, even though like it's hard for him to speak. I think they did a great job with this scene and very tastefully kind of brought him in. The uh, text messages get a little bit awkward, but only as far as all text messages in film feel a little bit awkward. But yeah, I will put back a little bit because even though you're right the relationships that immediately surrounded tom cruise's maverick like those relationships were really strong they pushed the movie forward so like Iceman, which is val kilmer jennifer connelly's character and miles teller's rooster you know they're all really strong sort of like uh, relationships that this this movie explores. But, you know, there's a bunch of cadets, not necessarily cadets, but like the cream of the crop of fighter pilots that are like really young. They're here. And those relationships are not nearly explored as much. Like you get sort of like snippets of their personalities and their personalities are somewhat interesting. But, you know, it doesn't dig much deeper than that, which is really disappointing because I feel like it, the movie builds so much with their personalities being showcased but it doesn't execute it very well they're just kind of like okay their personality that you see is what defines them for the rest of the movie they don't change they don't actively learn not really except for like the guy who kind of saves the day but he's still a bag at the end of the film just less of a bag i guess easy on the language buddy this is going in the non-explicit category i can't believe that's a bleep moment but what were you saying about (laughs) i'm just saying like that even though like the cast appears really interesting the only interesting character among them is maverick and the characters that immediately tie to maverick himself absolutely I actually agree. And generally, even the people who are in the room with Maverick pretty frequently, you, you like the kids aren't really doing a, a whole ton. I'm like looking at the cast list. I don't remember many of these guys at all. Jennifer Connelly is the major moment. Jennifer Connelly and her son actually are both pretty interesting characters. Oh no, her daughter. But yeah, her and her daughter are a really interesting duo. And the way that her daughter and Maverick interact is pretty interesting. Daughter's name is Amelia, according to the cast list. But yeah, a lot of these guys are some really good actors. I mean, you've got Glenn Powell, you know, these really cool guys. He was the better one. Like I said, he had some change. Agreed. I think he was definitely the highlight, but he was also pretty two-dimensional. And same with John Hamm, who like, dude, it's John Hamm. John Hamm was terribly miscast in this movie. I actually think he would have done a great job with this character if they gave him a little bit to chew with. But John Hamm is a funny guy. Like he can do this really stoic thing, but you have to make him, you have to, I think they needed to up the ante a little bit because if he was goofy, that would have really worked, but he wasn't particularly goofy. They didn't seem to hit that balance very well. Well, I think they watched an episode of Mad Men 
and they were like, you know who would be perfect for this role? John Hamm. But then they didn't understand that they make Don Draper likable over the course of many, many seasons. So many, many hours of television. And John Hamm appears maybe like 30 minutes altogether in this entire film. And the entire time he's just kind of like, Maverick, I hate you for no reason other than I think that you're trying to act cool when you are. You are really cool, but I still hate you because, you know, I'm the real authority here. It's it's kind of it's kind of crazy. He's it's like that stereotypical I'm your boss and I hate you. It's been done in like every 80s movie ever. Yeah, to death. So it's it's like, yeah, it, it hits the notes, you know, in terms of playing the melody of this 80s nostalgia movie. But it doesn't really go that far in the more plotty moments. That said, I still really like the ending. And that ending is like, it's really good at just being an action story. You know, you know all of the points because you can't miss them. They continually hammer home like this is what we need to do at this moment in time and then after that we're going to do that and after that we're going to do another thing and so when you're watching them go down this ravine and they go up again you know exactly these points that they need to hit even if you have no idea about fighter pilots which I truly have no clue when they drop these names of these types of planes that they're riding with I have no clue what they are which is fine because you don't need to when you're watching this movie you're able to turn your brain off. In fact, it's a really good turn your brain off, just watch it, have fun, and if you can get past the lack of logic, fine. You can say it's a great movie. But a lot of, um, I think a lot of people coming into the end of the year, you're seeing Top Gun Maverick on a surprising amount of end of year lists. It's not on mine. It's pretty dead in the middle of my ranking. Good movie, not yeah, great. Yeah, absolutely. I think like my favorite parts were the training montages. Like when they're in the plane and they're trying the maneuvers and how difficult those maneuvers are are like when they broke broke it down like you have to be there in three minutes and you know you have to push the plane into such an altitude really quickly that it will feel like it's crushing your body you know you and you have to condense it really really quickly if you're too slow you you're dead if you're too fast you're dead that kind of stuff was really interesting because it reflected what i at least believe was the real sort of danger real fighter pilots have to go through on a daily basis you know because it's a really difficult job to be a fighter pilot you need 2020 vision you need to train for it for a very long time it's one of the higher echelon of things you can do in the navy from my understanding or at least you know like the air force and i just think that you know it's just one of those things that is is the most fascinating things found in this film because it actively explores a reality that a lot of people don't quite understand but when it moves into this 80s american chest pumping without actively like moving deeper or or creating a different conversation around it that's where i find it incredibly disappointing we are going to talk about like black panther wakanda forever soon it's really important to mention that black panther the original black panther like changed the game because it actively talked about situations and conflicts that are happening now on like a much deeper level and while i agree that this movie does still talk about like deeper things of like human beings 
beings and specifically Americans feeling misunderstood and ignored in their current society in, re in regards to where their professions are going. I still think that there is no conversation about American patriotism and sort of like the toxic elements of that, that especially, you know, you look at this movie and it's like the 80s and how that sort of the reason we deassociate from those kind of movies and genre now why it's pretty much dead other than this movie is because you know we've moved on we've moved on from it and i feel like this movie doesn't spark a conversation from that sort of conceptual sort of thinking. It instead just digs up a body and is and then brings it back to life. And I must say, it's like a really well-made Frankenstein. Like really, really well-made. But it is not as interesting as people make it out to be. So on that note, we're going to talk in a moment about a very, very smart filmmaker who made a not very brainless movie, something that has a lot of spirit in, this, in the same way that uh, Top Gun Maverick does, but has a a little bit of thought in it too and we can compare and contrast how these blockbusters tell their stories right after this break stay tuned for black panther wakanda forever All right, uh, let's talk Black Panther Wakanda forever. So we are going in chronology. So Top Gun Maverick was early in the blockbuster season. This isn't even in the summer movie season. Black Panther Wakanda forever is the final movie of phase four for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is this little known series of movies that have come out over the past few years, starring people that you probably have heard of the kid of Robert Downey was in it um okay the joke's done anyway so this is the sequel to uh Kugler's Black Panther which came out in I believe 2018 um it was right before all of the characters showed up in that really 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 big one right Infinity War so yeah. you and I saw Black Panther together um at your house back in 2020 yeah, I made you watch it. Was it was probably the first time that I saw an MCU movie and saw it be a little bit more transcendent. I have not historically really loved a lot of the stuff in the MCU, and I think we're going to talk about why in just a moment. But... Yeah, I had to force him, you guys. I had to sit him down and be like, you're going to love this movie. And he was like, no, no, I'm not. And I'm like, you will. And he's like, no, yeah, no, no, no. I was... I was couching it a little bit. I really did not want to watch Black Panther, but I'm glad I did. So thank you. What did you think about Wakanda Forever? I thought I thought it was good, but it was long. I had like, remember our conversation about like the Batman, which was, I believe, our first podcast episode. It was one of our first. Also a solid movie, just really long. I don't know what's up with, you know, Marvel movies or just superhero movies, because I know the Batman is not Marvel. Like, don't worry, guys. I'm a nerd, too. And well, but then there's the superhero movie Elvis, which is also <laughs> 25 minutes too long. No, but what I'm saying is is that you know like the superhero movies are not meant to be three hours i'm sorry like it's just it just doesn't work they're not epics you know they're just like blockbusters you know like i get it black panther is was a transcendental movie as you said but i i don't know i just don't understand why these movies or these directors are like these movies need to be so so long they need to be epics they need to be like the ten commandments or ben-hur because so much needs to happen in them and look as 
you know, my favorite movie of all time is three hours long, but it deserves to be a three hour long movie because it is sort of like an epic and it's not a superhero movie. Um, it's Amadeus, by the way. Yeah, it's the story of Mozart, which does deserve to be three hours long. And it's also yeah. a extended cut of the original, which cut a large section of the movie that was essential you for- watch it if you guys haven't watched it because it's one of the best movies of all time, if not the best movie of all time, in my opinion. And has absolutely nothing to do with Black Panther. Um, I did enjoy it. I, I did enjoy it. I, 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 I did enjoy it. I'm sorry, I have to say it so many times because I'm still not sure if I did in fact enjoy it because, and I'll explain what I mean. I thought everything about it was good, but at the same time, not as good as the first one by any means. And I think that's the problem because sitting there, I was so hyped for it. I mean, me and Jordan sent, you know, the trailers to each other being like, wow, this is amazing. I sent you the first trailer. I said, this might actually be something. Yeah, you did. And you were like, oh, okay. I don't think you really took me seriously until the second one came and you were like, wow, this could be something. And I was like, you're absolutely right. And I think the stuff that was in the trailer ended up being some of the best parts of the movie, which is the early stuff that deals with the death of Chichala, right? So obviously the elephant in the room, which I guess we really have to get into, even though to me, it seems obvious, but um, this is what we do, right? So T'Challa is the main character of Black Panther. He was played by Chadwick Boseman, had a terminal illness, and he passed away not long ago and was not able to make the second Black Panther movie. He was in talks. They had, in fact, an entire script written for him, from what I gather. And what that actually is when they're talking about Marvel to me is unclear because they talk about all these times in which they've written this entire tome. But then when you watch this movie, it's like, okay, how much of the original script ended up in the movie? Because you get this piecemeal sense of a narrative alongside another narrative, alongside Easter eggs, alongside... So you get sort of like a, a layer cake of a movie when you actually watch it. And this is why me and good old Marty Scorsese go into these movies and, and we sort of sit there like, yeah, me and Marty right next to each other. We, we like, we're looking at this kind of sideways and I'm like, what makes this sort of a proper narrative? Because you get some good moments, but it's all interspersed. It's all spliced in with a lot of other stuff, which is sometimes okay. Sometimes, you know, your mileage kind of varies there, of course. Some of it, I think we can probably agree was objectively the wrong choice to put in the movie. But then there's other stuff like Riri Williams, who plays a part in the story, who has a relationship with the main character, but still seems to be extraneous. Yeah, Marty Scorsese, Martin Scorsese. See, you got me saying it too now. Martin Scorsese would never waste his Netflix money <laughs> to go to a theater to watch any of these Marvel movies. And I actually know a little bit about what they were working on, like that first draft and sort of its relationship to Chadwick Boseman before he died. The script was like that first draft was ready. Ryan Coogler had asked Chadwick Boseman if he wanted to read it. And Chadwick Boseman, I think this was three weeks after before his death. Uh, don't quote me on this, but I think Chadwick Boseman was like, no, I want to be surprised. You know, that's what he said to Ryan Coogler. But the original script was essentially the same. It had still Namor or Namor as... Um, 
the main villain of, of the story. But sort of the inner conflict T'Challa had to deal with in that story is that he got blip or snapped. You know, he, he had died in Infinity War. And, you know, he was gone for, I believe, like five years. And that's sort of the conflict he has to deal with. The fact that as king, he was gone from Wakanda for five years and he wasn't able to rule and sort of like that guilt of not being there for his people when they needed him the most and stuff like that. But all of that changed, obviously, to a movie that rightfully and thankfully serves as a tribute to not only the character of T'Challa, but also the amazing actor that was Chadwick Boseman. And when the movie focuses on that, and only that, is it really, really, really good. Oh, but it's like transcendent too. You see these moments where these people, and you know, you could almost piece together just a fan cut of this movie that's just those moments that would be just absolutely beautiful. But in turn, when you look at it from a larger movie, it's like, what are we doing here? You know, like, um, obviously the ones between Shuri and her mother, um, Ramona, Ramonda, and uh, Ramonda, I believe is it. Yeah. Um, and and that's Leticia Wright, the anti-vaxxer, and uh, Angela Bassett. Now, despite the fact that apparently Leticia Wright was giving people trouble on set regarding her vaccination status, I think she does an award-winning performance. I think she's really great. And so I'm going to separate the art from the artist there. Lupita Nyong'o also similarly has a really, really great performance kind of dealing with the fallout of T'Challa's death. But also, I fail to see where she fits in the larger narrative. And that gets into to the fact that uh, some of these characters are essential. Io comes back and she's important and she's kind of, from what I gather, she's continued to show up in some of the TV shows and some of the various things. Is that true? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she appeared in um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which I believe was the third one of the early ones right tv show or second some of these characters i feel like are important io does okoye as well shuri obviously is like the main character she then ends up um kind of taking uh yeah yeah and then you have some other people which you're like okay why it's not why are you here because of course you're going to be here, right? You you can't have the movie Black Panther and Black Panther Wakanda Forever be sequels without having M'Baku, without having uh, other characters. <laughs> Okoye, Shir- but, Shuri, Akoye, Nakia. Sure, sure, sure. But, you know, you, and, and Kia is a, a good example. Or Anika. Anika and Kia? Uh, I'm Anika is an, is a new one. I'm anglicizing it. Yeah, Michaela Cole's character is a new one. She's new, and the fact that she's in this movie is awesome because she is a great performer and she brings a lot. But also, I'm sitting here like, why are they adding new people when they barely have time for Mumbaku, who is one of the best characters from the original? And they bring him in, and he does some really fun stuff. But he's sort of delegated to giving the speeches about their exposition dumps, right? Like, that's all M'Baku is doing in this movie. And then in the end, he gets to be one of the warriors in the action scenes. But other than that... Well, and also potentially king of Wakanda at the very end, because he shows up to, like, the ceremonial, like, king duel as opposed to Shuri. So he might actually be the new king of Wakanda in the next film. But I think, yes, I agree with you that he does mainly just do exposition 
exposition dumps, but I feel like he does really effective exposition dumps because, you know, when you connect this, I think this is where the film goes something, this is something for its, to its favor, that when you connect it to the first film in particular and how Mumbaku was sort of a rebel who was against sort of like this current culture in Wakanda, and then you look at the second film where he's actively trying to defend it and trying to defend like all the citizens of Wakanda and all the tribes of Wakanda and, and is trying to give proper advice to Shuri moving forward who's you know as the movie progresses she's driven more and more by vengeance uh, more than anything else and hatred more than anything else when Mbaku is like the voice of reason that, and you connect it to the first film it just feels like his own really effective character arc but imagine not watching the first film or not even remembering the first film that much and then watching this film you feel somewhat disconnected because you're just kind of like this is an exposition dump how is this served a larger context of the story but then you don't realize that it in fact does you just need to essentially continually connect it to the first film because that's what this film continuously banks on the transcendency of the first film and many marvel movies do this and many sequels but if you compare this to top gun maverick top gun maverick really feeds you what you need to know from the first movie and that's i think a good way to allow for that dissemination but in marvel you're expected to do all the emotional work as an audience member because the movie doesn't have time to do that for you it doesn't have time to linger it doesn't have time to do these dramatic shots you know we're not doing uzu here it's about driving on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing even if the material is pretty haphazard i mean if you cut away all of ross and big bad julie louis dreyfus who i don't know her character and i don't really care but there's valentina the character of ross and um the first movie is the like token white guy and that's fun because it's martin freeman right uh, you're talking about how you know getting winston duke to come in and do these things makes it transcendent that's i think the case across the board with the black panther series is even if they didn't have kugler taking the helm and making this something slightly above the normal timbre of a marvel movie which it always is going to be like kugler is just way too good and the team he's assembled is way too good to have it not be at least a little bit emotionally resonant and it is obviously but then you also have a lot of this more plotty stuff because they're setting up yeah armor wars with uh ruri williams and dominique thorne being the lead obviously and of course they're also setting up like how ironheart ironheart yeah Ironheart and and the Thunderbolts is the thing that Julie Julie Louis Dreyfus is is helming right. So all of these movies are being set up yeah, in this and, movie. Well, some of them are TV shows. And so you have to watch. I mean, when it's when we're talking about Marvel, I find it kind of difficult to see why a TV show has to be a TV show versus why it's a movie. It's just really about length because you've got Samuel L. Jackson coming up in this new Secret Invasion thing. So, and I don't need to, you know, I, we don't really need to get into my opinions on whether Secret Invasion should be a movie or even why it's part of this it's a TV show. No, I know, but I'm saying it should be a movie because it's Samuel L. Jackson coming back into his. Role 
role. And Samuel L. Jackson is arguably more important than any of the individual Avengers on their own. Yes, I agree. But, you know, this is where I kind of disagree with you because I feel like you can do a lot with TV nowadays. I mean, look at House of the Dragon and Lord of the Rings, you know, Rings of Power. And I know we're not talking about the TV shows here, so I don't need to hammer on my takes on Marvel other than the fact that I have takes on Marvel. Yeah, but at the same time, I would be like, I wish this was kind of a TV show because I feel like it needed some breaks before I moved on. You think Black Panther should have been a show? Yeah, like the Wakanda Forever, definitely. (laughs) Because it was a lot of plot. I think there would have been a lot of good material for a TV show, considering we don't get to see much of actual Wakanda, right? On account of the fact that we're doing the Thunderbolt setup and we have to go all the way out into Riri's campus. We leave Wakanda for so much of this movie. I saw more of Boston than Wakanda or Tualcon, you know, like, which is like Namor's. That makes me so angry. Yeah. Because Wakanda is like the flavor of this movie. Yeah. I mean, you see Wakanda and it's like big action sequence when it's like, okay, now we're going into spoilers. So step away if you haven't seen Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Spoilers and Namor, I think. Namor is pretty tied up in the spoiler. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, when Namor comes in and just like destroys Wakanda, you still, you see Wakanda. That's when you genuinely see all of Wakanda, but it's actively being destroyed. You know, they go to Talakan, which is Namor's sort of city, this underwater Atlantis sort of city. And by the way, originally it is Atlantis in the comics, but then they connected it to sort of like the Mayan culture. So they wanted to call it something more appropriate, which was Talcon, which I thought was awesome. You know, like I, I thought that's what I mean. I really want to talk about this because I know we we are trying to get through a lot here in this video, but this audio that we talked about like oh, American totally. patriotism and sort of like that American chest pumping in uh, Top Gun Maverick. But I think a sort of a move... Uh, like this new genre that has been emerging, which I'm very proud of as a third culture kid who, you know, grew out outside of like his home country. As an appreciator of all cultures around the world, I'm very, very proud of the fact that Hollywood is moving towards a situation where they're trying to actively showcase cultures around the world and showcase how wonderful and beautiful and powerful they are. You know, even though it's like from an American purview and perspective, I think it is like a step in the right direction. And I feel like that's what made one of the reasons Black Panther was really, really powerful because it showed like an African nation and a lot of people have their own sort of stereotypes and perspectives of what an African nation is, which is in their minds like poor, rife with civil war and incredibly, incredibly disenfranchised. Wakanda Forever and the original Black Panther both try to showcase that that's not the truth, that there is a vibrancy and sort of like there is sort of like an inner strength that we don't understand because we're not from that culture but that movie attempts to at least like showcase like even this with this like fake culture it's trying to showcase like no africans and african americans you know have a lot of beautiful culture in themselves that we just don't understand because we don't even try to understand and it's the same thing with like the mayan and mexican culture that's also connected to the american culture at When it comes to sort of minority cultures, people are just outside of those cultures, meaning Caucasians, it's harder for them to understand them because the way sort of like America condenses those cultures 
and Americanizes those cultures. It's hard to see beyond just that. But these movies are at least trying to be like, no, these cultures came from something else, which is like tribes in Africa and the large Mayan empires and, and, you know, like Mexico and what is today Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and it allows you to parse what difference looks like, right? Yeah. A lot of Americans, when I was growing up, it was not something that we really, um, we, we weren't able to understand the difference between a Chinese culture versus South Korea versus, and we're seeing a lot of progress, right? A South Korean movie won Best Picture. There's movies that feel unique to a particular setting. Decision to Leave came out recently. I really loved it. And they do a pretty good job differentiating several Asian cultures that if I were growing up, I wouldn't be able to know the difference. Just the visibility, I think, is so, so essential. And yeah, it does bleed into American culture. And of course, it's going to be a little watered down just by nature of it being through our lens. Yeah, and a blockbuster. But the fact that we get that visibility of the Yucatan people is fantastic. And it tells us a little bit about the ethos behind Black Panther, which is its anti-colonialist bent, which is beautiful when it's being utilized. Of course, it's still going to be in the Marvel machine and there's going to be limitations to how far they're going to take it. I know that and I can, I think, accept that because it's still a celebration of other cultures and that positivity means that it's got some good warm fuzzies that you leave the movie with. And that's that's the best part of Black Panther Wakanda Forever too, is that you do leave the film feeling good about Shuri, feeling good about Namor, and feeling good about a lot of things, you know? Even while I think that there's a little bit of problems with too much plot, too many characters, it's still a fun time walking out of the movie, particularly for Namor, which uh, we still do need to get into a little bit more detail of. It's a fairly green actor playing Namor here. He is in a lot of the movie, and I I struggled relating to him as an actor. I found that his story was very compelling. His writing was obviously top level, but I think he was one of the more weaker actors, and I wonder what the thought was bringing him in. What did you think about? Tanu Huerta? I think that's how you say it, Huerta. You know, I thought it was fine. I thought, you know, like, I appreciate, I mean, I love antiheroes, so I appreciated that sort of no more in the comics is has a long history of being an anti-hero. He's like the Marvel version of Aquaman, but at the same time he is regarded as the first mutant ever in comic like in Marvel comics. He is one of the oldest Marvel characters ever. And from the very beginning they were like okay, we want him to be both a hero and a villain because he was a villain for the Fantastic 4 and their comic run. And he's also a reoccurring adversary for Black Panther as well, which is how he was connected in this movie. But yeah, I very much love sort of his motivation because it just made me understand really quickly. Okay, these are the stakes and these stakes are important because for him, for the character of Namor, he's just like, oh, I really appreciate Wakanda because just like us, they are a hidden superpower. But why would you share your strengths with the rest of the world if your strength came from being hidden? You know, that's actually really compelling because it connects again directly to that decision in that first movie of T'Challa being like, we should open up Wakanda and help the rest of the world because we have this much power. Whereas Namor is like, no, we have this much power to fight back against the rest of the world. So it's like the polar opposites again, which Black Panther, the original Black Panther played 
Hollywood as well with Killmonger sort of like motivations. And this just does it in a different way. And in a lot of ways, a larger way, because it's not just one person's ideal versus another person's ideal. This is like two nations ideal. And I mean, that's like the sequel problem. You just go bigger, I guess. But you know, it's still very compelling when it works. Because when you condense it to sort of Namor's motivation and Shuri's motivation of these people are so similar, you know, they're both leaders of these nations, but they're going through a lot of emotional upheaval regarding their role in society. People see him as a god. And for Shuri, she herself is like, well, my brother is dead. My mother is dead. Now people are looking on to me to be their leader. What do I do when I don't necessarily not only want to be leader, but I am so scared and emotionally distraught over all the loss that I've endured lately. So what do I do? And you know, like that final sequence when they fight, and then you see how they're similar their lives are, it was really emotional, because I bought into the fact that she spared him that she was able to overcome her grief and her hatred. And it was really real. But as you said, I feel like the actor was trying too hard to be like this villain, not being able to tap in what makes Ryan Coogler's version of Namor really, really strong, which is that heroic aspect of him, like that leader, that king. But I think that's also Ryan Coogler's fault because he doesn't showcase his nation, Namor's nation, for that long. I mean, we were there for like 10 minutes. So I don't know. I feel like that's where the mess of the movie happens. In a lot of ways, it focuses on things that are not as important as the interesting things. The reason Black Panther was successful is because we were able to really understand the nation of Wakanda. I mean, we are not able to fully understand the nation of Talakan as much as we understand as Wakanda from that first film. Yeah, and Talakan is explored. Like, we get to see it, but it's the same problem as we had with um, Top Gun. Yeah. The actor um, who plays Namor gets a ton of screen time, but his secondary characters... One of them is his cousin. There's a sea of names. I um, also wanted to quick correct myself. Okoye is like my... is was sort of my big takeaway character. I was calling her Ayo, but Ayo is, I think, the person who is with Okoye during a lot of these sequences. She's her second in command. So that's one of the characters that kind of got lost in this sea was Ayo, and Okoye was the kind of the takeaway character, and then there's Michaela Cole's character who also tags along a lot. So it's just like kind of a lot of people. My apologies to Black Panther fans. Also, like this is so much bigger than just the Marvel MCU, which I want to acknowledge. Well, it's like a proper epic. So I do want to speak to that just while I'm in the same breath critiquing this is a larger property and saying that I think there needs to be a better sense of these people. But that said, um, I want to highlight my favorite part, which is definitely, definitely nails deep in the spoiler territory, which is the moment where we get Shuri on her vision quest. We, we still need to talk about Riri as well yeah cute character i think that she was misplaced in it oh man that's all i really have to say about it what did you think before i get into shuri and her vision quest which i think we need to be able to let stand on its own as we enter a podcast what did you think about riri though i mean i pumped my fist when i saw her chicago flag in her room i was like yeah but no like i mean 
like I at first liked the fact that she was included. I was like, okay, cool. This is like a character that is directly affected by T'Challa's choices in the first film because she's connected to those outreach programs that he created after the first film. So I was like, okay, this is how it's affecting America. This is how his choices are affecting the world at large. And I also like that it came back to haunt him in some ways because she created this machine to find vibranium. But what I didn't buy is that we needed her for the entire film because obviously if the mili- the US military like took this machine and used it for a test drive, obviously they didn't need her anymore. Like they obviously copied it down, the schematics down or whatever. Like there, there's a lot of like common sense thinking about what the military would actually do if they were, if this little genius child made this machine. They would obviously have like backups upon backups upon backups to recreate it. Well, but she was like this human MacGuffin, which was being transported from place to place, again, because of Namor and Namor's ideas and conceits about Americans. And eventually they're like, no, we're not going to sacrifice this little girl and yada, 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 which to me was just so extraneous to the main plot, right? Namor should have gotten much deeper into his relationships to Wakanda and not dealt with the Americans so much because America is a villain to both nations. That's a given. We don't need to spend time with the Americans. And I think the first scene where Angela Bassett just like chews her way through this wonderful monologue, it's it's maybe a minute long and it's all we needed. And there's just way, way more there. And what happens in that scene? Angela Bassett serves, babe. I don't know what to tell <laughs> you. It's, she just does. She's, she's saying no. We've already told you no. And stay away from our very brain yeah basically like americans and not just americans but the entire larger western world is trying to steal wakanda's vibranium and then wakanda's like spec ops stop them and then it, this was supposed to be covered ops by the the western powers and then during like a meeting yeah weapons of mass destruction we all know what happened in 2003 uh as you said ramonda just like serves them by taking the french covert operative to the UN. <laughs> she serves them. He is serving Mama. And basically she's like, look, you think we've lost our protector, which we have, but that doesn't mean that we are weak. And that's, as you said, a really powerful moment because it speaks to both things like Wakanda is weaker because T'Challa isn't there and the world is preying on it now. But that doesn't mean that Wakanda is not going to fight back. And that's like the entire message of this movie in a lot of ways that Namor also preys on that weakness and then Wakanda fights back. But and just to finish off that whole Namor and Riri stuff, you're absolutely right that it feels like a superfluous like MacGuffin because he just a side quest because he just drops it. Namor drops it himself himself he's like in the middle of the movie where he's like look wakanda join us or get destroyed by us he's like yeah i don't really care about riri anymore this is about wakanda and tuala khan essentially coming together to to destroy the rest of the world and ruling it and that's what i feel like happens in a lot of marvel movies increasingly 
is like they got to get to the cheese. They got to get to the good stuff. Yeah, he should have just started with that. And when Coogler is running the cheese with stuff like, we have lost our protector, but blah, 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 blah. That's like, that's not a Marvel movie. That's just a movie. That's just a real good movie. And uh, moving into my final point, they brought back Killmonger, man. That's giving us what we want. That's playing the hits. And that's playing the hits in a way that I think... Marvel appreciators can appreciate. That's something that Black Panther fans can appreciate. And it's something that if my dad went to go see this movie and he didn't watch the original Black Panther, but I think he still got a lot out of that scene, even though, because he just says, hey, cousin, you know? And that's all you need. Okay, they're cousins. It doesn't matter that he has this whole backstory that we learned about in Black Panther. He's just, you know, they're cousins. And that's what's important. And so that moment was so wonderful. And it also showed Shuri's moment, right? It showed what her journey was in the movie, and I think a lot clearer than a lot of the other scenes, where you don't really get her being as aggressive as she could be. I think they nerf her in a lot of the earlier scenes. Wow, that was dorky, dorky to say. And right at the very end, you get a lot, you get a whole lot, and it's really, it sings. It's beautiful. I was going to say that you're absolutely right. That was my favorite scene of the movie, too, because as you said, it's not just creating appreciation in a Marvel fan or a movie fan. I think it's just like a really beautiful scene, and it's very Shakespearean in a lot of ways, because Shuri, the entire time, views her transformation as the new Black Panther as another chance to see her brother again, because that's the person she expects to see. And we, the audience, are like, well, how is that going to happen? Chadwick Boseman is dead. Those who know, know that he wasn't able to film any of those scenes. So what are they going to do? Or for people who don't know, or like, oh, they're holding out hope. Are we going to see Chadwick Boseman? Right. We're along with her. We don't expect it to happen, but we sort of want it to happen anyway. Yeah, because he comes, like Eric Killmonger comes, and he represents the darkness and the vengeance. And Shuri herself fights against wanting that, wanting the vengeance, wanting to follow her hatred. But then she realizes like no that's why he's here because i've wanted it all along and that's really powerful because it's like it's very human you know she has gone through trauma after trauma after drama and she hasn't been able to sit with it alone and and process it so now all she's left with is just anger and i think that human element of it is what we rarely see in these superhero movies like these superheroes just being treated like normal human beings who struggle with everyday struggles because I think that's what the most brilliant feature of this film is, which is Shuri was never meant to be like this great superhero. Black Panther did not set her up to be like this amazing superhero. It set her up to be really smart and really strong, but never as Black Panther. Black Panther was set up in Captain America Civil War, as you and I saw many years before Black Panther. But I think that's part of the tragic wonderfulness that came out of this because of Chadwick Boseman's death. Letitia Wright and Shuri had to step up. They had to actively step up in a situation they did not want to be in and actively try to represent something that was far larger than themselves. And make sacrifices along the way, you know? For Letitia Wright, that was 
finally getting a vaccine and for Shuri it was <laughs> no no but seriously I think that Black Panther Wakanda Forever was a really really solid step up um, even while I think it was a step down from the first Black Panther movie but it was hard to pull off right even going miles it's really really hard to see that through because Black Panther was such a moment in time and having Chadwick Boseman and Michael B. Jordan in the same space acting against each other you know, alongside Kugler, who has, in some ways, I think Michael B. Jordan is almost like his muse, right? Because time and time and time again, they've like... Yeah, absolutely. He's been in every movie. Yeah, they've continued to work together. He was in the um, the Express, what's that called? Yeah, Fruitvale Station. And he directed Creed. And he directed Black Panther. And yeah, Creed and Creed and yeah. Creed again. Creed is coming out next year again, too. The third one. Yeah. Well, he, Ryan Coogler did not direct Creed 2 or Creed 3. Michael B. Jordan is actually directing Creed 3. Yeah. Um, yeah. Michael B. is taking it into his own hands. I actually thought that was a really great way to bring it full circle because Stallone directed himself in Rocky. So why not? Good for him, you know? We would be remiss if we didn't talk about the cli- like the climax of this movie because that's the most controversial thing about this movie. Saving Namor? No, well, saving, that's, that sounds like saving Willie. Also a fish. No, I was talking about like the battle on the water, you know, like how Shuri's big plan was to draw out the Talakans to, or the Atlanteans or the, you know, the fish people to fight them on a boat in sort of their territory. Like that was what a lot of reviewers were like this is and critics were like this is so nonsensical the fact that a bunch of wakandans died for no reason for a plan that might not work and that hinges on either shuri killing namor or coming to terms with him which is is like a massive plot hole because as mumbaku says in the movie he's like you kill namor you know we'll have eternal war with them and so shuri is like left with this situation where she's like all right i guess i'll make friends with him but she comes to that realization at the very final moment these battles have never been particularly plotted out we're not talking helms deep here the battles of the marvel cinematic universe when it comes to sort of like a lot of people they aren't really charted in any meaningful way. We talked about how Black Panther, the original one, transcends a lot of these movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, if not all the movies in this universe. And that final climactic battle did make a lot of sense, even though like it was badly, <laughs> it had bad CGI in it. But it made sense. You know, everything about it made sense, including the fact that Killmonger was like, you know what, I'm just going to peace out and die because I would rather die than be a prisoner and in bondage which connected deeply to his character of wanting freedom and to break the chains around him and whatever everything made sense even though it was badly animated here it's just like everything about that sequence is really weird like a lot of wakandans die for our half-baked plan shuri gets stabbed through like the stomach with a spear and then walks it off and still beats namor and is still fine afterwards <laughs> you know so much of it is nonsensical it's a little goofy okay uh, that i'll say i was a little incredulous but it's part of the contract of a action movie and so i was able to write a lot of that i i guess i guess well i will say like watching it in the theater i was in it also looked badly animated where they were on this like desert island but that was my take i feel like ryan coogler just doesn't know how to animate big cgi fights or his animators are just not very good (laughs) yeah 
I, he could have been getting the B tier. They're like, he's he's the A tier writer. We can send him the B tier animators. We'll send him the people who were working on uh, the nth TV show. Considering a lot of this is probably on the previs department. I mean, historically, Marvel has put their main set pieces, these final battles, into previs. So Coogler doesn't deal with it. And that was one of the reasons why back in the day, Edgar Wright left Ant-Man and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This has been a historic problem for Marvel. Unsurprising that that was your takeaway. Overall, though, solid movie, fun. And when it works, it sings and is transcendent to a lot of other Marvel entertainment. And when it doesn't, I'm sitting there waiting for the next thing. Rock and roll. Uh, but yeah, um, what do you think? One main takeaway that uh, other Marvel writers can learn from Coogler. I mean, my entire thing, as you know, is the deconstruction of what it means to be a hero. I think that's a very powerful and really interesting theme. And I feel like this movie and even Black Panther, the original one, explored it, you know, because it's like two ways of, of bringing justice to the world. And they managed to tie it with grief in this one, which I really Yeah, like. me too, because again, it's a very human emotion. And I feel like, you know, when you write these superhero movies, it's really, really important not to forget that human beings inhabit these superheroes and human beings feel human emotions and when you lose sight of that you make your, these characters these really powerful characters into these untouchable sort of alien sort of creatures then it's really hard to connect with them i mean it was really easy to connect with shuri in really uncomfortable ways uh not only did i understand her hatred for a big chunk of the movie i was for her hatred i was like yeah namor deserves what he's getting and it was the same thing that i felt when kill monger was like yeah we should bring guns to disenfranchised people around the world so they can fight back i was like yeah but at the same time i was like no that's genocide but the fact that i said yeah and empathized with it i was like wow that's really powerful and it again taps into not only a very serious issue that's happening around the world but also just the fact that some of the darkest elements of our humanity are still part of our humanity and they should be explored and talked about. and at the end of the day that ties back into our talk on Top Gun Maverick, where Kugler is able to find his way in our current cultural, dropping the name, zeitgeist, which is very important. Do like be able to see us and see our culture in something that might be a little bit foreign. Obviously, Top Gun Maverick was able to just rely on the fact that the US military is something that people have a lot of sentimentality for. But we were just talking about how it was kind of surface level because it wasn't able to find that love and find that sense of community in something deeper and more relevant. And Kugler, regardless of what we think of his oceanic set pieces, he's able to do that in such a deft way and with such a balance that, yeah, not only could Marvel learn from him, but when inevitably they uh, bring back Miles Teller for Top Gun 3, I I think Joe Kaczynski could probably stand to uh, see some Kugler in his work as well. That said, I think it's about time we close off another episode of Zeitgeist. Thank you guys all so much for tuning in. As always, make sure to tell your friends about our podcast. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, I know it allows you to do a rating. That would do a whole lot. Um, we are now officially on Apple Podcasts. I had a couple of false starts, but we're there. Yeah, woohoo! So, I am Jordan Conrad signing off. And I am Neil Boz signing off. And 
next time we'll be talking about yeah, anime, right? Well, no, not yet. I think it's. Oh no, we've got an end of the year pod. It's December time, so make sure that next time that you're tuning in, because we're doing our tops. We're doing our top TV shows, definitely. Um, I have a top movies list. I don't think you probably do, but I. I don't know. I think I'll 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 combine them. (laughs) You'll have to. You'll have to just have a media list. Well, that'll be good. Yeah, media list. I'm excited for that. Uh, And and yeah. Jordan gave a bit of a spoiler of what we're going to do as our first episode of our second season. Ooh. The anime. Yeah, Jordan's teasing the future of Zeitgeist. <laughs> we're starting it with what we uh, what we were going on. Well, we were talking about animation a little bit a couple episodes ago. Yeah. So now we're, we're bringing it in. We're going back to our, yeah. uh, our two episodes ago roots. Our very, very <laughs> recently dredged roots <laughs> i mean like we we did western animation now it's time to do eastern animation oh my god that's how i'm seeing it hey and then after that i'm getting you on decision to leave we're going park jan wook come on and dude you've got to see this movie it's gonna be amazing yeah, yeah. you're gonna love it i'm looking for it yeah yeah for sure i don't know how to find it where you're at but that's that's a <laughs> that's a thing for a different time but for our audience, uh, stay safe out there during the holidays. You know, don't drink and drive when you're back at your parents' house. Make sure to take a cab. Um, and we will see you at the end of the year. So goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.